Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Amy. And today I'm talking to Dr. Danielle Dick. She's a professor of psychology and human and molecular genetics at Virginia Commonwealth University where she directs a research institute on behavioral and emotional health. She is an internationally recognized expert on genetic and environmental influences on human behavior. And her new book is The Child Code, Understanding Your Child's Unique Nature for Happier, More Effective Parenting. This book offers a science-based approach to parenting centered on a child's unique genetic code. This book tells parents that our biggest job is to help our children become who they were literally born to be. Danielle is the parent of a 14-year-old boy and a 5-year-old girl. Welcome, Danielle. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I love research. I'm the nerd of this podcast, so I and I this was so fascinating. I can't wait to unpack this with you. So where the book starts, if there's one thing we believe right when we become parents is that it's up to us for this to work out or not, right? Our rules as parents are crucial. They're critical. And and that's all we got. We better not mess this up. But the truth, you argue, is actually much more complicated. Yes. So as you said in the intro, my background is that I study genetic and environmental influences on human behavior. And a lot of my research is on kids. And so I knew that my research was super helpful in raising my own son, but I saw that so many of my smart, accomplished other mom friends were putting so much pressure on themselves and worried so much about their every single decision. And, you know, what I knew was, okay, the research suggests that's not really, you know, we're putting too much pressure on ourselves. We don't need to worry so much because the bottom line is a lot of our kids' behavior is influenced by their genes, right? They've already got a lot of what they need for growth and development coded within. And so I sort of, you know, remind parents of think about like when you were pregnant, that you know, you did things to try and help your child grow and develop, right? You tried to eat healthy and you probably tried to keep your stress down. And, but you were not thinking, oh my gosh, I have to attend so many prenatal yoga classes or else my child will not develop arms, right? Or like, if only (laughs) I eat a perfect diet, then my child's going to get an extra arm. You know, we just, basically our job is 
don't mess it up, right? That they have their little genetic code that's helping them grow and develop. And really what we want to do is just provide good environments to support that. And it's like as if once they're born, all of a sudden we're like, okay, now it's on us. Game on. And traditionally, there's been lots of studies that do show that parenting practices do influence children's behavior. You argue that the studies are sort of misinterpreted, though, to sort of over-engineer for parents influencing behavior as the only explanation for what's happening. Can you explain how it's much more complicated than that? I want to be clear that I'm not at all saying parents don't matter. Of course, parents matter, right? Parenting and what we do with our children is very important. But what the research shows is that genes also really matter. And that, I think, is the big message that isn't getting out to parents. And I think that's been because parents think like, well, if it's all in their genes, then, you know, I'm in the trenches. I'm the one who's every day having to deal with like, how are we getting out the door to school? And how am I going to handle, you know, temper tantrums? And like, what do you mean I don't matter? Of course I matter. I want to know what I can do about it. And really my message is we put too much pressure on ourselves by thinking it's all us and not recognizing that a lot of kids' behavior is influenced by their genes. And the second part is that I actually feel like we're doing ourselves a disservice by, you know, not only putting pressure on ourselves, but in addition, we're making it harder because the fact that our kids are all uniquely wired, if we ignore that, then actually we're ignoring important information that can make it easier for us to figure out what their needs are and what to focus on and how to parent them. And so we can kind of, you know, tailor our parenting to what our child's needs are by recognizing all of our kids are different and they need different things. So by understanding how your child is wired, you can know more about what their needs are and what kind of parenting practices are likely to be most effective and that you can focus on. So your book says that every kid is actually coded, right? They're born this way. They're coded with predispositions for being anxious or a risk taker or, I don't know, quicker to anger than other kids, more impulsive, more happy. How do we know this? How have scientists sort of come to understand that even something like anxiousness can be encoded? There have now been hundreds, thousands of studies that show how important genes are in human behavior. And the way that we figured this out is that a lot of all the child development literature and the parenting advice that's out there is focused on studies of parents and kids. And what they find is that parenting is related to kids' outcomes. And they go, aha, okay, parenting practices must be shaping the kids' outcomes. But the piece that's missing from that is that, of course, Parents and their biological kids are also sharing genes, right? And so, Mm -hmm. you know, an example that's used all the time is parents that have a lot of books in their house, right? Their kids tend to be better readers. Well, maybe it's because being exposed to a lot of books is really important in promoting children's reading. And of course, we actually know there's elements of that that are true. But the other piece is that Parents who are good readers also tend to have a lot of books in their house. And we know that reading ability and, you know, cognitive ability and those things are genetically influenced. And so their kids both have kind of, they get the double whammy of an environment that promotes reading, but they also probably have genetic predispositions toward liking reading. So, and that's true when 
almost regardless of what you're studying, right? So you can imagine like the flip side is like more aggressive parents or parents who have more punitive discipline also tend to have more aggressive kids. Now, you know, and that's been concluded, well, you know, this sort of like harsh disciplinary style causes aggression in kids. Well, we do know that there's an element of truth to that, that, you know, these, obviously that's not a disciplinary style that's great for kids, but it's also that parents who tend to be, you know, quicker to temper have kids who have genes that make them mm. more quick to temper. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. family studies make it really hard to tease apart. Is it genes or is it the environment? So the kinds of studies that we can do to figure that out, one of the most common ones is twin studies, because twins essentially come in two types. So there are monozygotic twins, or what we usually call identical twins, which is single egg fertilized by single sperm. So they are genetically identical. Their DNA matches exactly? Exactly. Okay. With a few teeny little rare exceptions, like sometimes there's a mutation here or there. But Okay. You know, with that small caveat, yes. So some of you may remember, I think it was back in the 80s when they cloned Dolly the sheep and there were all yep. the articles about like... <laughs> Goldilocks alert. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Are humans next? Are humans next? We're going to be cloning humans. Well, the reality is we have clones all over the planet right now and they are identical twins. Oh. And... Then the other type of twins are fraternal twins, or what we call in science dizygotic twins, meaning two eggs fertilized by two sperm. So they are sharing the same amount of genetic material as ordinary siblings, about half, but they just have an intrauterine environment that's shared, and of course, they're age-matched. So what we can do is compare these different types of twins who, when they're raised together in the same home, essentially what you have are two age-matched and potentially sex-matched siblings, same parents, but they differ in that some of these types of twins are sharing more DNA than other types. Mm, So if we think something is genetics, you know, let's start with, actually, if we think it's all parenting, and for example, we're studying, you know, do parents who have alcohol problems, does that lead their children to be more likely to drink early? then we would expect that regardless of whether you are sharing all of your genes or half of your genes with your sibling, all the kids being raised in homes where, say, parents have alcohol problems are going to be more likely to have alcohol problems, right? That it wouldn't matter how much genes you share with your sibling as to how similar you are or not. But if it's partly genetic, if something is partly genetically influenced, we would expect identical twins to be more similar to each other on the outcome than fraternal twins right? because they share all of their genes the DNA, uh-huh. and fraternal twins just share half on average of their DNA. So we can study anything you're interested in. And there have been thousands of studies. They have studied everything from impulsivity to clinical disorders, to happiness, to likelihood of getting a divorce, anything you can think of. You can go out and you can measure it in identical twins and fraternal twins and see how similar are identical twins and how similar are fraternal twins. And if identical twins are more similar than fraternal twins, it suggests there is a genetic component to this. 
if they're equally similar, it suggests, okay, it's just familial influences that are impacting this. So that's one of the big ways that we can figure out, you know, how genetically influenced something is. And there's variations on this, right? So there's identical twins that are also separated at birth. So now what you have is, you know, the same genotype, right? The same kind of genetic individual, but being raised in different families and in different environments. Yeah. And they've, you know, brought them back together as adults. And they actually find that they are almost as similar to each other as identical twins that are raised together in the same family. I've definitely seen that 60 yes, Minutes segment, totally. right? Where it's like, you hate pickles, I hate yes. pickles, whatever it is. They have remarkable, weird, specific things. Yes. Yeah. I learned something from this book. I am not a scientist, but I love research. And I did, had never really understood this until I read it in your book. That So a child gets 50% of the DNA from its father and 50% from its mother. Like, I understood that. But which 50% can totally differ from child to child? That blew my mind because I never really understood that. So somebody might get their father's brown eyes and somebody might get his risks taking or something. (laughs) It's not the same 50%. And that's why siblings tend to be more similar to each other than to random people, right? Because their genetic material got picked from the same genetic pool if they have the same two biological parents, right? But like you said, what 50% of those DNA variants they get from each parent can be random. And that's why sometimes they end up really similar and sometimes they end up really dissimilar. And, you know, in fact, we often talk about that parents are very often environmentalists until they have their second child, meaning, you know, you have your second child and you're like, wait, I'm doing all of the same things (laughs) and this person is not responding in the same way. Like what's going on here? And, you know, I think if you can set aside all that research, to my mind, that's one of the most powerful things as a parent to remind ourselves, okay, yes, do we play an important role in our children's lives? Absolutely. But are we shaping these little beings from scratch, right? Is it sort of the world is your oyster in terms of what you want your child to be? No, they all are their own little people. Not as much as you thought. So then there's no right way to parent. Your book suggests that there's only the right way to parent the child that's in front of you. You know, that's another thing that I hope parents will take away from this book is that so often the world, and even if we're honest, we can do it too, can be really judgy, right? About if your child is misbehaving, you know, like, what are you doing? You should be doing X, Y, Z, or why are you doing it that way? You know, this is the right way to do it. Or I read this in a book. And and the reality is that all of our kids are very different. I mean, we see that on the outside, right? Like Mm -hmm. people all look different. They all look different from, you know, eyes to ears to everything, you know, their facial features. But it's easy to forget they are as different on the inside as they are on the outside, right? So in the same way that you look at each of your children and they're very different, their brains are also wired very differently. They're experiencing the world in very different ways, even than us. So that's why this whole idea that there is a right way or a best way to parent, it just, when you think about it that way, you realize, well, that can't be true, right? Of course, there are some good things. You know, loving your child is 
obviously good for all children, right? Mm -hmm. But even what that looks like, what being a warm, loving parent looks like is different for different kids, right? Meaning that they even respond to or interpret their parents' behaviors or actions differently. And so one kind of concrete example is you can think about, you know, you can say a harsh word or, you know, give like one child a stern, like you better stop that kind of look. And, you know, it could move one child to tears or stop them in their tracks. And another child is like, meh, like not phased by it. Right. Yeah. And you're doing the exact same thing. And yet they respond to it very differently. So, you know, that also then reminds us, okay, well, if we're trying to get our children to behave in certain ways, right, or we're trying to nurture them, that we need to take into account their unique little temperaments, right, to figure out what is best for each of our children. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how we do that and how we figure out what is underlying each child's unique predisposition. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses, first two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist-approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we say? and making diaper changes a breeze. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E, lumen.me, and use the code FRESH at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. We're back. We're talking to Dr. Danielle Dick, and her new book is called The Child Code. Danielle, you say that there are uh, sort of three things that underpin each child's unique predisposition. So first we start from like, okay, my kid is unique and I can help shape them, but they are who they are. And then we need to get curious about how they are who they are. So what are these three pillars? Obviously kids and all people differ in all kinds of ways, right? But 
there tend to be three big dimensions that show up across studies across all cultures and lots of different studies of different kids. And I call them the three E or the big three, which helps me remember them. And they are essentially extroversion. So how much does your kid like high energy activities and being around other people versus how naturally disposed are they to be quieter and enjoy, you know, more restful time to recharge. Similar to extroversion in adults, right? That's something that we all kind of can recognize and empathize with. The second one is emotionality. So some kids are simply predisposed to be more quick to distress, frustration, and fear, right? That that is naturally how they respond. The third one is effortful control, or what is often sometimes called self-control. I like calling it effortful control because it reminds us it takes effort Mm. for all of us, but in particular, more so for some individuals, right? So some individuals, effortful control is referring to how easy it is to control our behavior, our attention, our emotions. And of course, all kids start off low on effortful control because it's related to brain development. All kids get better at it with age, but ultimately where we land is also related to our unique genetic wiring. So Mm. some kids naturally are better at controlling their behavior and emotions than other kids. And so say I hear these three pillars and I have a kid who really struggles with effortful control, finds it very effortful and maybe is on. I always like to think that there could be different trajectories and your kid will get there. They're just going to acquire that ability to sit through class a little more slowly than other kids or to not throw a tantrum. It's going to take them a little longer. They'll get there. But say you see it like, okay, effortful control. That's where my kid has a little bit of a struggle and they are wired that way. What's the parental approach then? Because it seems to me there must be a balance, right, between like, well, my kid just throws tantrums and that's who he is and that's how he's made. And it is my job to fix this and make sure it never happens. What's the sweet spot? Yes. And you're right. I do think there's a sweet spot. So, you know, I want to make sure to emphasize again, it is not like, oh, throw up your hands. My kid is just wired this way. You know, the point is our kids have natural tendencies, right? And so you might have a child whose natural tendency is to be lower on effortful control, or I call them low F kids, right? Um, the low effortful control kids are those who are going to have more trouble following your directions, right? Or sitting still in class and focusing on a task, And I think one of the important things to remember is as a parent, the first thing that we can do is say, okay, they're not just trying to, quote, be bad, right? They are not just trying to (laughs) To work your last nerve, right? Not listen to me. What they, that their brain is wired that way, right? Like they're wired to be, you know, more impulsive, more risk taking. And by the way, those are not necessarily bad things. CEOs are higher on risk-taking. Fighter pilots are higher on risk-taking. Entrepreneurs are. But it also makes it harder for us as parents when we have these, you know, more risk-taking children who have lower self-control. So I think then our role as parents is to recognize, 
okay, this is the way my child is more naturally wired. It is not that they are just trying to not listen to me, right? That they are just predisposed to be that way, you know, for it to be harder for them. And so what we're going to do is focus on skills to build that, right? Skills to build that in the areas that are important or where you're having trouble. So for example, and I talk about different strategies in the book for building mm-hmm. more self-control with kids who are naturally lower. And basically, you know, a lot of self-control comes to stopping things that we want to do but shouldn't do or starting things that we don't want to do but should do, right? And so that's the whole like... It sounds like being a grown-up. <laughs> it is, right? I mean, that's the thing. So often we hold our kids to higher standards than we do ourselves, right? And so... And that is a product of the way our brains have evolved. And so you probably heard about hot brain and cool brain. No, what's hot brain and cool brain? Oh, okay. So hot brain is, you know, that is related to our limbic system. This is the most basic parts of our brain. Okay. Yeah. This is the, you know, um, fight or flight kind of. It is essentially primed toward reward and, you know, the things that we want and wanting them right now and running from the things that we don't want right now. And this part of our brain is highly developed from the time we're born. And that's why babies are very good at crying when they're hungry or when they need something, because that is our most basic primitive. That's what keeps us alive, right? You know, you had to be able to realize like, oh my gosh, like lion, I need to run quick. I don't need to puzzle through. Is this a dangerous creature? And should I think about it? And, you know, Mm -hmm. but a lot of, and then our cool brain or prefrontal cortex, right? The part kind of right behind our forehead, that takes much, much longer to develop. And so it's not really fully developed until about the mid-20s. There's evidence that girls are done developing their prefrontal cortexes and boys, it takes a little bit longer, which, you know, if we all think back to our young 20 male friends. Well, it explains a few things. It does explain a few things. Exactly. It really, it really does (laughs) help you understand them in a new light. But so yes, boys actually do develop self-control a little bit later than girls. And that also contributes to things like why you see higher rates of ADHD diagnosed in boys and why girls tend to be viewed as more compliant and they can sit in their seats better. And, and of course, you know, still within boys and girls, it's a whole continuum, right? But on average, girls tend to be a little better on self-control than boys. It's one of the few behavioral dimensions where we actually do see sex differences. Most of these other things like emotionality and extroversion, we don't see differences overall between boys and girls, but self-control we do. Are there any trends, extroversion, emotionality in sort of, I don't know, maternal age or birth order? Do you factor that in or is it do you look at it more how it relates to the parental genes? So everybody loves to talk about birth order. And I do, too. I will tell you, you know, it's fun to be like, oh, well, I am the oldest and that's why I am the leader and I like to take charge of things. And Well, it's visible. It's visible to the average person right? Is. in a way that what you do probably is not. It turns out that actually there's very little support for birth order. What? Yes, I know. I know. I'm learning so much. But actually, you know, the influence of our individual temperaments and our natural tendencies is much stronger than birth order. Right. Like that might be a factor, but how you're wired, your genes... Exactly. It's a much smaller factor compared to how you're wired and then some of these other big parental factors, which can play more of a role in outcome. If you have a kid who 
who struggles with effortful control or who has ADHD or who is higher on emotionality, is more reactive. We're going to be upfront with understanding those challenges and helping them sort of develop in those ways while also having maybe more compassion for like a really loud birthday party is going to be harder for this child of mine than the other child of mine. Are we upfront with our kids about these things. Do you talk to your kid about you seem to have some struggles with these things? And I think it's because you're like me. Absolutely. Yes. I think that sometimes are not recognizing it for as important as it is makes it harder on us as parents because we're putting so much pressure or we're worrying or thinking, what am I doing wrong? But I also think it puts pressure on our children too inadvertently because sometimes we then are, you know, either thinking, they're not listening to me because they are trying to be defiant, yep. right? Whether that's because they're a highly emotional child or because they're low on self-control, when really it's that they are just wired toward, say, more emotionality. And oftentimes, you know, it's as frightening for those kids as it is for us when they, say, throw big temper tantrums. Because they have these huge feelings that are coming out of nowhere. They get that it's very upsetting to you. And our natural tendency is often to clamp down on them, right? To get angry and say, you need to stop this. And we implement consequences, which even makes it scarier. And of course, now what we're doing is imposing consequences on our easily frustrated, easily distressed children, which makes them more upset and more worked up. And so you can see how kind of failing to realize that actually rewards and consequences work to increase motivation, right? That's what we're really trying to do, right? We pay people to go to work because we want to motivate them to actually go into work. But for our kids who are, say, highly emotional or who are very low on self-control, they don't need more motivation. It's not that they're lacking the motivation. It's that they're actually lacking the skills, Right. So highly emotional children are wired to naturally jump to being more upset about things. And whether that is, you know, there was a change in plans, it's raining, so we can't go to the park today. Or, you know, I was making a picture and the color blue that I thought the sky was going to be, it was the wrong crayon. And now the picture's ruined. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, Whatever that might be, that they are more, they have these different triggers that they get really upset about. And so rather than thinking about, well, I need to like implement more rewards and consequences, which can work for kids who are not so highly emotional, right? They can work for other children who are lower on that dimension. But kids who are more highly emotional, what they actually need to learn is skills. And, you know, it's imagine if your child couldn't, was having trouble reading or was having trouble doing algebra, you wouldn't expect that they could learn algebra by your putting together reward charts or punishing them when they did bad on their algebra test. It would be, we actually need to teach this child algebra, right? How to do algebra. Yeah. And that's a lot of what happens when we fail to recognize like, okay, emotionality, some kids are wired toward being more quick to frustration, fear and upset. So how do we work with them on the specific skills that they need? And the other thing is, it doesn't happen overnight because, to use another analogy, kind of like learning to play the piano. Even if you sit down and you talk about it, you know, you problem solve with your child, which are some of the strategies I talk about in the book that 
are effective. You come up with plans. They're not just going to be able to implement it overnight because this is a skill that they need to develop, which does not come naturally to them. So in the same way that you can't just decide, I would really love to be a great piano player. It's what I want. I've got the piano. I've got my music. I'm going to sit down and start playing. Well, it's going to take a lot of chopsticks before you get to (laughs) Beethoven, right? So those are some of the ways that I think really recognizing and understanding, hey, our kids' genes play a big role in their behavior can help us as parents. It can help us be more empathetic. It can help us you know, put less pressure and use techniques that are going to make things worse with our kids and instead focus on here are techniques that will work with kids who have certain types of dispositions. Makes a lot of sense. Okay, we'll take a break. We'll be right back. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. We agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber, while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to Hero.co and use the code MOTHERHOOD at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code MOTHERHOOD for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy the Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of the Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. Danielle, I wanted to talk about the idea that genes do not, in the end, write our kids' destiny because we can get very, kids can get fixed mindset about, I'm just bad at this, I'm just a dum-dum, and I'm bad at math, right? And somebody could listen to, you know, 10 minutes of this conversation and come away like, well, then it's there's something you can do about it, right? If my kid is wired this way to be, I don't know, explosive, right? To throw tantrums 
and I'm just supposed to handle it and accept it and there's nothing I can do about it. No, you're not saying that. You're not saying that genes mean that your kid can't grow or change. I always say DNA is not destiny. And it is so important as parents that we do approach parenting with a growth mindset and not a fixed mindset. So nothing about genes suggests that that is how they work, meaning I'm just predisposed to be this way and that's how it is going to be. We have these natural tendencies, but of course our environments then shape how they play out. And so as one example, you might imagine a child who is more predisposed toward anxiety and there are different ways then that the environment can shape how that unfolds. And so, for example, we know that there are environmental strategies which are effective at helping kids reduce and manage their anxiety. Namely, we want to expose them in small doses in ways that they can get comfortable and learn to manage their anxiety and see that things are okay. And then we slowly build on that. But if you try and throw them into the deep end of the pool and just say like, you know, we need to get over it. Well, that's not going to work. And if you say, oh, well, my child is just naturally fearful. So that's the way it is. We won't go anywhere. Exactly. I'm not going to try because they get upset. Then that's not good for them either. And so really, all I'm saying is genes matter. And so we want to understand our kids' natural tendencies so that we can then apply the strategies that are going to be most useful and helpful for our kids. Do you think that behavioral science and people who study parenting are coming to understand this a little more and not sort of, I want to bring up an example you talked about in the book because I thought it was fascinating. I think everybody has heard the story that autism was at one time blamed on so-called refrigerator mothers, that these mothers didn't show sufficient warmth towards their children and that caused the autism. And obviously that's not true, but you explained how observing mothers of autistic children might have shaped that idea. I think that part of the reason that the idea that genes play such an important role in our kids' behavior doesn't make it into mainstream is because it makes parents feel like, oh, is there a worry? Does that mean there's nothing I can do? Well, that's not a message I want to hear. But the flip side of that is that by failing to recognize that, we put so much more pressure and we attribute things to parents. And so, as you mentioned, historically, autism, schizophrenia, I mean, candidly, most all behavior problems were blamed on parents and it was usually mothers, right? And the mother, right. And in fact, when they observed kids who developed autism and mothers, what they found is that, in fact, mothers were interacting less with their children. They were smiling at them less. They were picking them up less. And they went, oh, well, it must be this cold, you know, withdrawn mothering style that's causing autism. But in fact, when they followed moms and kids over time, what they found is that those moms started out just like other moms, right? They were picking up and smiling and playing with their children. But when your child doesn't at all respond to that, when they seem to not care, and in fact, sometimes it might be upsetting to them, you do less of it. And so there have now been a ton of studies which show that actually our children's behavior drives our parenting even more than our parenting drives our children's behavior. Um, because oftentimes what we're doing is we're responding to the way that our children are. 
And the problem is that sometimes that can lead people to think what that parent is doing has caused the behavior when actually it's a result of the behavior. Mm -hmm. And so I'll give you another example, which is one that happens all the time still, I think, which is you see a child throwing a huge fit in public and you see that parent, you know, seemingly not making what you think is a big enough deal about it. They aren't clamping down. They're not stopping that behavior. They're not punishing the child, you know. And so often we have that, oh, that parent needs to, you know, insert your favorite parenting advice uh, here. But really what we found is that actually, you know, we know that in the moment, children, when they're highly dysregulated, that actually clamping down on the behavior or trying to use that as a teaching moment or trying to impose consequences in the moment actually makes the behavior worse, especially for these highly you know, emotional children that are prone to upset. If you now try and clamp down, mm. they're just going to get more worked up and more upset. And so oftentimes what that parent learns over time is, I just need to manage this in the moment, right? I need to not get my child more upset. And so they are actually responding in a way that they have learned is effective for managing it in the moment. That child, right. To manage that child in that moment, right. But other people look at it and say, oh, mm, permissive parent. That is why that child acts out because that parent doesn't do anything when they throw a fit. And it's a really common mistake. And that's also why as parents, when our child is throwing a fit, I know I certainly, you know, have felt that feeling of, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm being judged by other people around me. And I hope that by getting the word out and people understanding, actually, no, some of these kids who are just more dysregulated, it's not that the parent is doing anything wrong. And in fact, when they are managing it in the situation, that's actually the best thing that they can do. They need our support, not our judgment. Mm-hmm. Heaven knows that's true. We've been talking to Dr. Danielle Dick. Her new book is The Child Code, Understanding Your Child's Unique Nature for Happier, More Effective Parenting. Danielle, tell us where we can find you and your book. You can find me at DanielleDick.com. There's information about the book. There's additional resources for parents. And there is a link to the book, which is also at thechildcode.com. And you can purchase it online and get free instant parenting manuals or at bookstores anywhere. I loved this book because it combines the science and research that I love with actually actionable techniques that you can use with your own kids to make you know your life a little happier and easier right away. I loved this book. Danielle, thanks for talking to me today. Thanks so much for having me. Margaret, it's an exciting news day. An exciting news day indeed, Amy. A few years ago, we launched our first spinoff podcast, Toddler Purgatory, hosted by the hilarious Blair Brooks and Molly Lloyd. And guess what? Now Blair and Molly are back with their all-new podcast, Unsticking It. You know Blair and Molly as two busy moms and actors, and somewhere between potty training and the pandemic, they both felt like they lost their creative kaboom. In their new podcast, Unsticking It, they are going to talk about how all of us can get back to what lights us up after motherhood. Amy, I need this. Me too. And Blair and Molly will be talking to fellow imaginative minds. We're talking actors, artists, and creators of all kinds about how we can all unstick ourselves from whatever muck we're stuck in. 
Follow, subscribe, and listen to Unsticking It wherever you get your podcasts. That's Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life stucks. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts.